Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I am Amy Gunn, and I'm here today with Liz, Elizabeth, Megan, and Mary. Hello, ladies. Hello. Hello. We are discussing today independent medical examinations, also known as IMEs. Now, in its very title, there is a problem, which is the word independent. Because in the context of the litigation that we have where there are clients who are injured, the defense will ask for an IME. And by its very nature, it's not truly independent. It is a physician or a healthcare provider that is chosen by the defense to examine or interview our client. And the only real reason for that is to have an expert testify that the client is not as hurt as he or she has alleged or doesn't have the problems going into the future that we believe is the case. So really, it's a defense medical examination. And there's an effort, I think, strategically to call it a defense medical examination. But the rule in Missouri, 60.01, is simply examination and report. It's not called independent medical examination and report. It's just called examination and report. So my first bit of advice on this situation is to really kind of reject the idea of it being called an IME or an independent medical examination. It's just an examination by the party that wants to try to gain some advantage by having an expert in a medical field say that our client is not as injured or hurt either now or going into the future. So in Missouri, the rule is 60.01, as I mentioned, and in federal rules of civil procedure, it's 35, and they're very similar. Part A of 60.1 indicates that in an action in which the mental condition, physical condition, or blood relationship of a party is in controversy, the court in which the action is pending may order the party to submit to physical, mental, or blood examinations by physicians or other appropriate licensed healthcare providers or to produce such examinations. So the defense can ask for a plaintiff to be examined by a physician physically, mentally, or the second part of part A indicates that you can have like a voc rehab examination done, which really doesn't go so much to injuries so much as whether the person is able to work. So there's really two parts to it, either a physical examination slash mental examination or examining the person's ability to work. And the key word, of course, is may. So, Elizabeth, what is the difference when you see the word may in a rule versus the word shall? doesn't mean it can automatically happen. You kind of have to ask for it, and uh, the plaintiff has every right to oppose it, and then you can go talk to the court about it. And the rule does go on to say the motion must be made for good cause shown. So let's start with, at least in my experience, a lot of times what you'll have is a request from a defendant to do a, quote, IME. And quite often, it's stipulated to. And you say, okay, fine, tell me when, who, what, those types of logistics. But oftentimes, there's a stipulation. 
But that doesn't have to be the case because, as Elizabeth pointed out, it's a may versus a shall, meaning the court can grant it for good cause shown. What I want to try to convey today to our listeners is it's not an automatic. Certainly just because a defense attorney calls, or a plaintiff's attorney for that matter, this could possibly go both ways. But if an attorney calls and wants to examine the client through a, quote, independent medical examination, it doesn't have to be the case. So think carefully about whether you want your client to go through that. A lot of things go into explaining an examination to a client. Liz, have you ever had to have a discussion with a client about submitting to an IME? I have, and I think it's important if you have a client that is about to go through an IME to explain what the process is. For most of our clients, this likely is the first time that they've had to experience something like this, and they need to understand that it's not a normal doctor's appointment. It's not like when you go to your primary care physician and you might tell them everything that's going on in order to seek treatment. They need to understand that the purpose of this is not for them to receive treatment, but for someone to basically take down everything they say and then go back to an office and write up a report that at the end of the day is going to be used against them. They need to understand that this is not a friendly relationship. It is inherently adversarial. And that doesn't mean they need to go in there and be aggressive and adversarial towards the doctor or whoever is doing the examination, but they need to keep that in mind when they are undergoing that. I have a question. When do you fight it? When do you stand up to the defense and say, we don't want to subject our client to this? Because it seems to me that it could be a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you want to be open and say, we don't have anything to hide. And on the other hand, it can kind of seem maybe insulting or a little bit dehumanizing to the client. I have an example where we fought it. The client had physical injuries from a defective product. Sometimes attenuate with physical injuries comes mental harm as well. Oftentimes people who are in severe pain also have sadness and depression and things like that. My client had some history of what's known as psychosomatic injuries, which is sort of a word that's oftentimes used to replace things like, I don't really know what's wrong with them. I'm not sure exactly. Maybe they're making it up in their mind. It's not a great term to have if (laughs) related to one of your clients. But she had sought psychiatric care because she was trying to figure out why her physical injuries were also causing her other odd injuries, so to speak. So the defense says, we want a psychiatric medical examination, not a physical examination, but a psychiatric examination. And we said, no, just because we've put her physical condition in controversy, which is what the law indicates, and what happens when you file a lawsuit, is you put your physical condition at issue. And just because she is experiencing other issues attenuate to that does not mean you get a psychiatric evaluation, because we knew that what the defense wanted to do was create a defense and have a psychiatrist interview the client and say, it's all in her head. She has no physical injuries that are related to the alleged product defect. The case law interpreting the rule does allow the party requesting the examination to set forth good cause, of course, and it can also do that to permit the preparation of an intelligent and informed defense. But that doesn't say you get to create a defense 
by subjecting a client to a psychiatric exam. So we argued that's exactly what they were doing. And not to mention that you've got tons of medical records and treating physicians, all of whom had been deposed, to explain what these treating physicians found. So we argued you can hire a psychiatrist to review all the medical records and to render an opinion that it's all in our head, but we don't have to subject our client to allowing that defense to be placed on a civil platter for you. And the court agreed. And I was surprised, quite frankly, because I was under the impression, you know, that these examinations are pretty standard, usually stipulated to, but this one kind of didn't feel quite right to me because of the psychiatric nature of it, even though my client was having some psychological issues. My lesson from that was think twice, Megan, to your point. Think twice before you just agree to it and look at the circumstances. And Liz, to your discussion as well, man, it's hard to explain to a client that you want them to go sit in a strange doctor's office and be subject to a physical examination by a doctor who is a, quote, independent practitioner. And it's just a really hard thing to explain. And I always like to be in a position to tell the client, you know, we might lose, but I fought for it. Now, if it's something not quite so invasive as, you know, just someone examining the back pain that you're having or something like that, that may not be that big of a deal. But I think we really have to think twice before we just automatically stipulate or agree to an examination. And I wanted to jump in. This is not a personal story, but this was actually a recent Missouri, I think it came out of one of the appellate courts. I don't think it went all the way to the Supreme Court, maybe 2019 or 2020 opinion. But in this particular case, the issue was the conditions and the type of testing. And the plaintiff's attorney fought the requested IME, the court actually granted it, but then it was reversed because the issue was, and if I'm remembering the case correctly, the specific injury that the client or the plaintiff was claiming was issues with swallowing. There was some sort of injury to the throat and, and he was having problems swallowing and that was a claim to damage. And so the, the defense wanted to subject him to this medical examination where he was going to have to swallow some substance and they were going to monitor it and uh, apparently determine whether or not he actually had this injury. The problem was they couldn't really give specifics on what he was going to be ingesting into his body. And what I thought was really important out of that opinion was that just because you have filed a lawsuit and put your injuries into issue does not mean you have lost the constitutional right to your body and to privacy and to protect your body. And so if it's a standard, you know, motor vehicle collision and they, they want to check, you know, is your shoulder really that injured? You know, we're, we're going to just run some, some quick tests and see what your rotation is or, or what have you. That one's not so invasive. But when you're asking someone to swallow a substance that the attorney could not identify what that substance was. And the only evidence that the defense really provided was like an affidavit from their doctor saying like, oh, don't worry, it's safe. Basically a trust me guys. And the appellate court said, no, 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 that's not enough. That is not enough to subject this person to it. You need to come back with more specific details in order to ensure this man's safety and that this is not only safe, but also an effective test. You can't just 
put someone through a battery of tests without proving that there's some point to it at the end of the day. So that's a really important example of when to fight a defense medical examination. So I've attended several defense medical evaluations with my clients, and a lot of the logistical or procedural aspects of it that I'm most interested in, I'll clear up with the other attorney, whether it's location or the scope of the examination. And this conversation has also made me wonder, are there certain questions that you all ask opposing counsel prior to the exam to tighten up the specific parameters or the scope of it? Because normally, if I'm there, I'm able to kind of guide my client through the examination. And if something feels like it's going to be a second deposition of my client, especially if it's a minor client and the mom or dad is with the child and they're asking a little bit too many questions of mom and dad that they can just find in the medical records, I can kind of stop them within reason. But I'm wondering, are there certain questions or do you get anything in writing with the other side about the parameters of what you're going to allow them to examine your client at? And if so, what? how do you go about that? The rule says if there's a request for an examination, then the court may order that, as we discussed, and that the order shall, again, may versus shall, specify the time, place, manner, conditions, scope of, and identity of each person conducting the examination or evaluation. So the rule requires specificity with respect to a number of things. If you're approached, it's like, ah, we want Dr. So-and-so to take a look at your client. You may have had a long history of examinations with Dr. So-and-so and be very comfortable with the request, in which case, okay, fine. However, I think in our context, which these don't come up all that often, it is incumbent upon us to, to say to, to opposing counsel, look, I'm just going to need an order, okay? I don't love the idea of stipulating. I don't like the idea of going to my client and saying, I've agreed to allow this person to take a look at physical examination of your body or mental examination. So let's do a protective order. I'm not going to say no, but I'm going to say I need to know all these things. And unless you can give me great detail about it, and even if you can, I think I prefer to have an order. So does that look like the defense filing something or is that us filing for a protective order? I kind of like the idea of filing for a protective order because then we can kind of control it. We're the one filing it. And you can just say, you know, pursuant to this rule, a request has been made. We've agreed. However, we would ask the court to enter the order pursuant to 6101, specifying the time, place, manner, condition, scope of, and identity. So the money phrase is scope of, right? I think that there needs to be a very clear scope. What are you going to ask? How long is it going to take? What physical examination is going to occur? I believe that the rule requires that information. And if you get pushback from a defense attorney like, oh, you're just being silly, you're asking for too much, you really aren't. The rule requires it. So I think it can be done in a cordial manner and simply asking the court for a protective order, setting out detail. And, of course, that detail is going to have to come from somewhere. You know, the defense attorney is going to have to provide a protocol And that's typically what I ask for. 
I want a protocol. And you might say, well, what's a protocol? Or what does it mean here? And it's exactly this. When's it going to happen? Who's the doctor? How long do you anticipate it taking? What tests will be run? Are they invasive? Will there be anybody else there? And importantly, Mary, as you pointed out, can I be there? I mean, right? This, if you're going to be talking to my client and my client's going to be answering questions, why isn't that really, I mean, maybe they're not under oath, but that's really a, an interview or a statement of my client. So I should be able to be there. Now, you're going to get a lot of pushback on that. Well, you can't be in the same room, blah, blah, blah. But I can be there. And I've been to examinations where paperwork needs to be filled out, and I require that that be sent to me beforehand, or that I be allowed to sit with my client and help him or her fill that out. So I have some control over it. Because Liz, you're right. Just because you file a lawsuit because you've been injured doesn't mean you give up all rights to your privacy and to your, particularly to your health. I think we're best serving our clients by getting the most detail possible, and the rule allows it. The rule, in fact, requires it. I also agree with the importance of being there. As you pointed out at the beginning of this conversation, Amy, really the goal is to have the defense have an expert who can sit on the stand and say, I personally saw the plaintiff, and I can say with all of my experience, they're not hurt. Or they're not hurt even closely to the, to the point where the plaintiffs are alleging this, this person is hurt or this child is hurt. And most of the time when I show up, and I think this works really well, if you're the attorney who's going to be deposing the defense medical expert, or you need to be an attorney who's working with another attorney on the same team who's going to be deposing them, because when you're there and you show up, you get all of the knowledge of actually understanding what the examination entailed. And in most of our cases, we're dealing with well, a lot of times minors who have suffered really catastrophic brain injuries, and they have major cognitive deficits. I can think of one defense examination, medical examination. It was my client, his mom, and the defense medical examiner. And I was expecting a lot of neurologic testing on this young child. And, you know, the extent of the examination was this doctor putting lollipops on the ground and the young child went and picked up the lollipop and the exam was over and a report got put together saying there's no problem normal kid normal everything everything's fine and because I went it helps in the deposition to go through the really laid out detailed report that the doctor's coming up with that may have copied and pasted from the last defense case that they Correct. worked on Correct. saying they're fine and nothing in the report talks about saw young child, put lollipop on ground, child picked it up, deemed all okay. <laughs> you know, it's just, that's why it's important to be there and show up because it helps you not only undermine that expert in their subsequent deposition or undermine their report. Sometimes you show up for an examination of what you know your client's injuries are, and then the examination has nothing to do to actually evaluate the damages that you're asserting our damages in the lawsuit, I highly encourage, and it's my practice to personally go to my own clients, IMEs or defense medical exams anytime I can for that reason. You learn a lot. If you haven't ever been to one, you should go to one as a young attorney or as a new attorney or the first time you have an opportunity to go. 
just go to it because you'll learn a ton, not only about what their defense is going to be. It's almost like they don't want to do the evaluation because God forbid the evaluation shows that your client's actually hurt because they actually are hurt. Right. I just wanted to emphasize that because you just take away so much and you can even sit there and write notes for your outline (laughs) for the deposition. I have been, and I have my stopwatch How long has this practitioner been examining, quote unquote, my client? Like you said, you're setting up your questions for the deposition that's coming down the road, and you were there. So if the answer is my client isn't hurt, I've evaluated, I've done this for 25 years, I have all this experience, blah, 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 you set up the background about how important it is to review the records, how important it is to do a physical examination, not just in this context, but just as a good practitioner. And you make it sound like you have to do all this work. And I'm sure he or she wants you to think he did all this work because it makes it sound more robust. And then you get to the question of, and so it was five minutes and 32 seconds, right? Right. And they're like, what? And maybe you're a witness to the case now. I don't know. But, (laughs) But certainly you have the authority to ask that question because you were there And they're not going to say, no, it wasn't. Then you say, I I was there, and here's a picture of my watch or whatever. Mary, your story makes me think of an IME that I went to where no one could deny the injury. In this particular case, our client's entire eye was gone. No one was going to fight whether or not she was missing an eye now. But when the defense expert came to do an examination I guess, of how bad it is to lose one of your eyes. One thing that I noticed, and I was preparing my outline to depose her as we were going through this woman's house, and and when I read her report, I noticed that there were so many details, little details missing, that painted a much rosier picture for our client. For example, she could still drive. She had basically overcome you know the loss of one eye in order to still drive and that was in the report but what wasn't in the report was the fact that this expert had physically gone out and looked at the car and there were dings all over the car because she keeps running into things because she doesn't have depth perception which is what happens when you lose an eye and so in the deposition I got to ask why'd you leave that detail out it's interesting to me doctor that, that you mentioned that she can still drive which we've never doubted we've never fought you on but you leave out the fact that she is crashing into things with more frequency or when the doctor wrote about how well she can still she can still cut vegetables on a cutting board okay did you mention the fact that she has to make huge cuts otherwise she's going to cut her finger and she told you this why'd you leave that detail out doctor and the fact that you were there and you witnessed it and now you are facing them or Zooming with them or whatever, but you are face-to-face with that person and you get to confront them with their dishonesty. And I think that that is really powerful. And you wouldn't know those specific details if you hadn't gone. So I have not had too many um, defense attorneys ask for medical examinations, maybe just because we're not fighting about what the, the injuries really are. Or they're so catastrophic that, you know, what are you going to say? But in the ones that, that we have had, I've always attended, and I think you can get really great information out of them. And, and you know, just take very detailed notes and use your notes in your outline. You also have to kind of debrief with your client after the examination. We talked a little bit about setting the stage for your client ahead of time of what to expect, but I have yet to have a DME with a minor client and a parent and the exam lacks 
any sort of exam, for lack of a better word. And the parent of the child will call me after and say, well, they didn't ask about this and they didn't examine this. And we just went to a neurologist who has him do A through Z tests, which shows how behind he is compared to other kids his age. And it's also important to let them know that's okay. We don't need to sit in the room and say, wait, make sure you do these five other tests so you can really see if he's hurt or not. Because we know how that plays out in a report or a subsequent deposition. It's interesting having an opportunity to watch how one of these are done and then how the report turns out. And it allows you to kind of poke holes in that as you as you go along. Another way to look at these, I think the discussion so far has been we don't like them, we need to get ahead of them, we need to limit them, we need to make sure we're there so we can, you know, throw some punches in cross-examination of the defense expert. But I have had situations where if I step back from my initial advocacy, my initial kind of maternal instinct with my client, they can oftentimes be helpful. If you have a somewhat honest examiner they actually does an examination. I have read reports and I've been like, dang, I like this report. This is a really pretty strong report. And you have that added heft to it that it's from the defendant. So it may not be every bit of it is fantastic, but after you beat them up a little bit about what they didn't do and what they didn't include, then be sure to really look carefully at the report and Focus in on what they did find and how it supports your client's position and supports the treating physicians that have been deposed and that that doctor, that defense doctor agrees with either the plaintiff's expert or the treating physicians. And that is probably why we don't see these requests all that often. And I think as a defendant, you have to be real careful to ask for a DME in those situations because 60.01 and Federal Rule 35 also require the report. This can't be hidden. You can't have a medical examination and then that doctor falls off the face of the planet. That doctor has to, shall deliver a report. So you're going to get the report. If you're doing defense work and you're listening, my advice would be carefully make the decision about requesting a DME because it very well could backfire and you can't hide the report. Do they always tend to be biased because they're being asked to do them by the defense? Or is it true to its name, independent medical examination? I personally think it's always there's always bias. If it's a defense expert, they're biased towards the defense side. But coming from a plaintiff's attorney perspective that I can't get out of. But to Amy's point, I've also had that same experience where I was working on a case with another attorney in this office and the I attended the DME and the report that we got back because the DME was um, a little bit more involved and it was just so evident of what the struggles of the client were and it was a minor client and we get the report back and the report identifies all the same damages that our experts identified. And I'm looking at the report thinking, what in the heck is this guy going to say in his deposition other than I could just have him read the last paragraph of his conclusions where he lays out the damages and say, thank you so much for your time. We agree. We'll see at trial. Yeah. And what happened in, in this case, which is equally as helpful to us, 
is that the other side knew that that report was not super helpful to them and confirmed a lot of what we had been saying since day one. And in the deposition, after we went through the report and got, yeah, I agree, I agree, I agree on all the damages that we've, you know, been arguing about for the last two years, he just says, I just think that they're just caused by issues from the mom and dad's medical history. Had he reviewed any of mom and dad's medical records? No. Was there anything he could point to in the medical records to support that? No. Did he even examine mom and dad? No. Does he know anything about mom and dad's medical history? No. So and that's equally as helpful to a plaintiff and equally as damning to the defense side because now two years into litigation, their entire defense has very quickly flipped on right. its head. To your point, I agree with you. It's either one avenue of approaching DMEs is make sure they're following the rule, set the scope, set the parameters, ask for all the requirements that are required by the rule. And the flip side is sometimes if you just let it roll and the exam's going really well for your client, then you'll end up with a really nice report that you can Mark is your exhibit one in your case to say these things are undisputed. Right. And that's what, again, my knee-jerk reaction is, no, I don't want this. I don't want to put my client through this. I'm going to worry about what it says. I'm going to have to fight with the defendant about the scope of it and take another expert depot. But if you step away from all that, it really could be helpful. Now, it sounds like, Mary, your situation was plan A is discredit the plaintiff, there's nothing wrong with the plaintiff. Plan B was, oh, darn, there is something wrong with the plaintiff, but it must be caused by something else. Yes. So plan A didn't work for that guy. (laughs) So he went with plan B. Unfortunately, plan B for that guy is he didn't really have any foundation for saying that it wasn't. (laughs) So again, kind of a good day. Mm -hmm. Now, Megan, you had asked whether everyone is biased. I think by the very nature of it, it is, but there's going to be different levels of it to different degrees. What you typically find in defense examinations is it's kind of the same doctors doing it over and over and over, and we've got the book on that doctor. Even if you don't love what the report says about your client, you can almost always dig into the history of this particular doctor and how many times he or she has testified on behalf of this law firm. And most of the credibility goes out the window or is at least diminished. Because then the question is, have you ever testified on behalf of a plaintiff's firm, on behalf of a plaintiff? And their answer is probably no, because that's just kind of how these things work. There are plaintiff's examinations, and then there are defendant's examinations. And I have had cause in the past to hire one for myself, for my client where we've had medical care outside of the city. The treating physician wasn't very helpful, and I needed someone to sort of wrap up all the injuries in a bow for the jury. So we have been in a position from time to time where we hire experts or physicians to do, quote, independent (laughs) medical examinations. It's interesting because that doesn't necessarily have to follow the rule because it's really just me sending my client to a doctor to be seen. 
But you do want the report and you do want to be in a position where you can support that because it's going to come out that I sent my client there. Because I'm thinking a situation where my client lived out of town, was injured in St. Louis, but lived out of town. I wanted a local doctor to be able to testify at trial, so my client had to come in for the examination. So you can't really explain that away by, oh, he's just another treating physician or she's just another treating physician. And when you do that, think about all the things that you love about deposing a defense medical examiner. They've worked for this firm a hundred times. They've never met a plaintiff they think is not lying, you know, those type of things. And try to pick someone who's not necessarily that. Because I picked someone who had done examinations for plaintiffs before, but never for us. So you can kind of take the sting out of that bias a little bit. The last thing that I do want to mention, just because I read about it in a case recently and I thought it was interesting, was a situation where your client may not be a native English speaker. And who are you going to get to sit in the room and act as an interpreter to make sure that everything is being translated correctly and fairly? And so in those situations, if you have a case where your client does not speak English or struggles with English, one of the parameters you need to set is making sure that you have a truly independent translator in the room with the doctor. Don't trust that the doctor is going to provide a translator that is going to give accurate information. You want someone who can sort of be a, a neutral, unbiased biased facilitator for that conversation. Sometimes in those types of situations, you can also ask that the examination be videotaped so that you can go back and check it yourself. So that's something I just want to throw out there because it's something we may not necessarily always think of, but you want to, in these situations where you are having to subject your client to Again, I still think it's an adversarial examination, an inherently adversarial relationship. Try to control as many of the parameters of this as possible, and language is a huge issue in these examinations. I think that's an important point, and the point within that point is the recording aspect of it. I don't think there's any reason why we shouldn't request that they be videotaped or at least audio recorded. There's just no reason. I'm not saying the court's going to give it to you, this rule was last amended in 1997, so there doesn't appear to be any real provision for recording or not, but I think it's something we should ask for. And then we all know what we're dealing with. We're not worried about what happened behind closed doors, so to speak. So, ladies, thank you so much for your time today. I think this was an important conversation to have, and I will tell you that just kind of talking through it has influenced the way I'm going to look at these in the future, and I think it's always good to touch base on those types of things. So thank you all for listening to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. We drop new episodes every Wednesday, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Subscribe to Heels in the Courtroom now. And check out the other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm library. Dive into the legal drama behind America's first medical malpractice case against opioid overprescription in Results Don't Lie. Check it out. <laughs>